Hey, Mary, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I, you know, I've been so looking forward to talking to you. So I have to do a fancy intro, and then we'll start, okay? Okay, great. Okay. Hi, all. I'm Abby Disney, and this is a special bonus episode of All Ears. I'm well aware that we just posted an episode saying that it was our last of the first season, and it really was. But what could be exciting enough to rouse us from our beach chairs and hammocks and other places of estivation? Mary Trump, of course. I have wanted to talk to Mary since the first whispers of her book, and I was not waiting till September to have this conversation. So welcome to this special episode of All Ears. At this point, you probably know a lot about Mary. You've heard it. She's the niece of Donald Trump. She's written an awesome book. Really, truly, it's a page turner. Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man about what it was like to grow up in that spectacularly dysfunctional family and about how the very specific person that is our president got shaped by wealth, by parenting, by patriarchy, by cruelty. Now, it won't be news to you that families are dysfunctional each in their own way, but trust me when I tell you that when rich people are dysfunctional, wow, can they ever hurt each other in very special ways. And Mary's extremely well-read, well-educated, a master's in English, and a PhD in clinical psychology. And in her book, she brings a really disciplined and cool eye and all that intelligence to the big questions about how we got here. So welcome, Mary. Thanks, Abby. It's really good to be here. So Mary, the subtitle of your book is How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think wealthy families create dangerous men as a matter of course, frankly. I think that's just hardwired into the project. So maybe you can tell me why you think they created the world's most dangerous man. As a private citizen, Donald would only be dangerous to himself and those close to him. The reason he's the world's most dangerous man is because he has, by virtue of his position, enormous power at his disposal. And, you know, not just uh, in terms of uh, brute force, like nuclear arsenal, but in terms of his ability to uh, destroy alliances we've built up over the decades to back out of uh, hard-won treaties unilaterally, uh, to commit acts of Islamophobia, racism, and homophobia with, uh, you know, through executive orders. That's that's why. Um you know, I, I actually would push back on you a little bit. I think they, they do create dangerous men and that they can be a, a, a menace even as private citizens, but they they do conflate their money with their worth. And so therefore, what they've got to say in terms of persuading politicians, swaying elections, lobbying, and therefore, it's already disproportionately weighted toward them to begin with, but it, it also gives them this sort of feeling of legitimacy in arrogating power that should really be left to the democracy. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And you're right, he would have been dangerous in broader ways, but certainly wouldn't have been the most, you know, it, and that's well, just because yes. he's somehow wormed his way into the Oval Office. And one of the things I've always kind of thought is that, that the dynamics of wealth, 
and losing your way with wealth are a lot like the dynamics of addiction. Um, and, you know, they, they say with alcoholics, they say one is too many and two is never enough. Mm-hmm. So so talk to me about this dynamic and how it manifested in your family. Yeah, I, you know, good catch, because clearly money past a certain point is is an addictive substance. And most people in my family had or have that addiction. And when you do have so much money, it becomes this self-perpetuating need to have more, especially in a family in which, you know, money is the only currency standing in for other much more important things like respect or acceptance or affection. You know, it, there, there's no way to fill uh, the holes that are left by the lack of those things. So the pursuit of money is both fruitless and compulsive. Yeah. And I mean, I think of it as, you know, you're living with everything you could possibly need and still living in a, an environment of scarcity. Yeah. And and that was another weird thing about growing up in my family. You know, not that I noticed it at the time, of course, because I was a kid. But it, it it's not like we grew up in, in material splendor. I was extremely fortunate in terms of the schools I went to and the camps I went to. And, you know, I didn't want for anything like clothes or shelter or anything like that. However, you know, I grew up in uh, Jamaica, Queens, which was a working class, lower middle class neighborhood and a pretty shitty apartment that, you know, was always in need of some kind of repair. I took the subway to school. We didn't have chauffeur. I mean, I think my, my, both of my parents mm-hmm. drove a Ford something, um, you know, no, no maids, mm-hmm. no butlers. And, and again, I, that was yeah. per- perfectly fine with me. And, and I, I'm quite grateful that none of that was the case, but it was just a, it's remarkable the difference between how wealthy Donald seemed and how kind of on the fringes of things the rest of us lived. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your book takes the family that Donald Trump came from and breaks the family down psychologically from the father, who sounds like a sociopath and a sadist, who pits his children against each other, to a mother who suffered from severe osteoporosis and was very delicate, but also a little withholding, to these five siblings who each struggles to find their own way. And your father seems especially damaged by simply having been what any normal person would consider nice. Can you explain what happened to your father? He tried desperately to be the man my grandfather required him to be, when that became when it became clear he couldn't do that, he struck out on his own to become a professional pilot, which should have been met with you know acclaim and respect. But he was tormented for that, dropped out, went back to my to work for my grandfather, and then spent the rest of his life being completely humiliated by him. And that's what's so painful about reading this book your grandfather really set up Donald and your father against each other in a kind of sadistic way. He, he feels like a sadist. And, and the thing is that siblings, very often they're a resource for each other in an environment of emotional scarcity. 
can you talk about that and the effect on your father? Yeah, I mean, and there's no need to qualify my grandfather's sadism. He was a sadist. And I don't know that so much, if he did set up my dad and Donald against each other, my dad wasn't taking the bait. No, he was seven and a half years older. He never viewed Donald as competition. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time my grandfather had effectively marginalized my, my dad, Donald was just like getting out of college. So importantly, the other aspect of this family you pointed to is that these siblings were never mm. unified. Just just for clarification, maybe if you could go through the five siblings, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, Marianne is the oldest of the Trump siblings. So my aunt and then my dad was the second oldest, but the crucially important yes. oldest son and namesake. I do know what that means. Yep. Uh, Fred Chris Trump Jr., and they were maybe a year and a half apart. And then three years later, Elizabeth, my Aunt Elizabeth came along another three or four years after that, uh, Donald, and then a year and a half after that, mm. uh, my Uncle Robert. In my family, the siblings and their sort of conspiratorial talk among themselves. I mean, because that was something that actually helped me a lot was just being able to whisper with my siblings about what mom and dad and whatever was going on. Did they ever do that, do you think? I don't know, but my guess would be absolutely not. They didn't even have that, you know. Even in talking to my aunt, who's now in her 80s over the last few years, she she could only skirt around the issue of my grandfather and could never just come right out and, and say anything negative about him. Yeah, it sounds so lonely. And I do know that loneliness often comes with wealth and especially growing up in a wealthy family. Did you did you feel that there was a kind of a loneliness at the core of everybody? Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it because they weren't just divided against each other. They were kind of separated from the, the rest of the world too because they couldn't talk about what happened in the house yeah. and they were just sort of functionally different. Yeah. So Mary, you write in the book that your grandfather was a sociopath. Can you talk a little more about that? I have no doubt in my mind my grandfather was a sociopath. Mm -hmm. And even if I didn't have insight into things that happened when my dad and his siblings were younger or, you know, what happened when I was growing up, you you know, a total stranger can look at what happened just to my father and extrapolate backwards and understand that uh, there was something deeply wrong and something crucial missing from my grandfather. Your father was singled out because he was nice? I mean, is that truly what what settled Fred against him? I think it was a, a few things. Everything my grandfather considered weakness, which would be kindness, the ability to admit your mistakes, the ability to apologize, and also having interests outside of the family business, all of the, my my dad checked off all of those boxes. So yeah, I, I think that is a big part of it. And he was extremely sensitive too. Mm. You know, it's it's hard to overestimate just how abused he was as a child psychologically. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't found any evidence to suggest that he was physically abused. Yeah, my my grandfather wasn't really a physical person. Like, I mean. The, the most contact I ever had with the man was a handshake. I never saw him hug anybody or anything. So, um, you know, 
because as a sociopath, my grandfather essentially used other people as extensions of himself. Mm. And my dad was kind of characterologically not able to be that person, Mm -hmm. which on the one hand is a good thing, but on the other hand is uh, what got him destroyed. So it's not just that, that my grandfather abused him. My grandfather dismantled him. So it got to the point where really the only thing that mattered to my father was my grandfather's opinion. And the reason that's, well, that's tragic on its face, yeah. but it's also tragic because he was never, there was literally nothing he could do after the age of 25 to get my grandfather's uh, acceptance, approval, or respect. And and he became an alcoholic. How? When did alcoholism appear on the scene? Yeah, well, you know, like a lot of uh, disorders, psychiatric disorders that have a genetic component, as with schizophrenia, if if a stressor, a big enough stressor doesn't come along, it just may lay dormant. Mm, right. His his drinking became out of control when he was working for TWA because it's not that my grandfather was mean to him, but there was, there was an endless onslaught of humiliation mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, being demeaned on an almost daily basis. And yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to stop being an alcoholic if, your family treats it like a failing of your moral character Mm -hmm. as opposed to a disease. Um, Marianne told me the story. My dad was, was very sick. It wasn't long before he died. He was living with my grandparents again and just couldn't quite get back on his feet after he had open heart surgery three years earlier. And she took him to rehab. Uh, She Mm -hmm. insisted he go to rehab and he went reluctantly, which is, as yeah. you probably know, the, the wrong circumstance in which to go to rehab. And when his 28 days or whatever was up, she took him right back to the house. Yeah. And she basically yeah. did the worst thing she could have done. And then and then he goes on. I mean, this this I, I need some clarity about this. Mm-hmm. He died not in your grandparents home, but damn close to it alone in an attic. 42 years old. Yeah. When he was 42, he lived in his bedroom, his childhood bedroom, which we called the cell because Mm. it was so small and grim. You know, (laughs) he literally had a cot uh, in his room, not an actual bed. So um, I didn't know this until much later, but he'd been in, he'd been sick for like two or three weeks, unable to get out of bed. Mm. Uh, and the day my grandparents finally bothered to get him medical help is the day he died because they let him get so sick. Um, and my grandfather, who had connections at two good hospitals, my grandfather just called an ambulance who took my dad to the closest hospital. And I don't think anybody in my family had ever been there. And instead of um, accompanying him, they waited for the doctors to call them. And that, I guess, Donald found that boring. So he and my Aunt Elizabeth went to the movies. Oh my God. Um, So my dad died alone, which is, I mean, unspeakably awful, but it's also uh, now in the days of COVID when people are dying alone because of the 
how virulently contagious this disease is. It's just sort of bringing it back in a yeah. new, awful way. Yeah. Um, it's it's almost fruitless to talk about the things that you would never have done in this scenario. But there's there are these two things that you get deeply wired into you from the very beginning. And one is that you should be suspicious of everybody, mm-hmm. but you should be loyal all the time in every way to the point of self-abnegation to us. Yep. Um, so, so did, were you kind of led on this sort of like don't trust anybody kind of way? Yeah, that's a really interesting observation because that that, that obviously is true for Donald and Robert. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad wasn't like that at all, mm-hmm. and you know he trusted everybody, and I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it's it doesn't work out well. But I would rather be trusting than not. I love that. You and I both made the same calculation. I just decided every so often things will be bad and I'd much rather be trusting. Exactly. Because otherwise, you know, your life is pretty narrow and and cold. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I I mean, well, I mean, the the suspicion thing is is in many ways the source of of that loneliness, too. It's not just Mm -hmm. loneliness is coming from inside the house. It's... It's coming from outside the house because you've sort of been yeah. told you're different. And yeah. so no one else really understands you and everybody wants to get something from you. Um, mm-hmm. But you turn around and you wrote this book. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm just wondering how you're processing that as a member of this family, given that you probably were told from very young that your job was to be loyal. Actually, they didn't consider me. <laughs> so I wasn't really told anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I was completely unimportant to them. So except as, you know, uh, a way to keep up appearances, you know, mm-hmm. get invited to everything and you always have to show up. Right. I mean, keeping up appearances is actually such a dumb thing, but it just drove my mother mm-hmm. and father. And, you know, my mother in particular was like, don't you dare get in the newspapers. Don't you dare drag our name through the mud and so forth and it was Mm. it was it's been really hard for me personally to speak up in any way because it's it's going Mm -hmm. against some of my programming i think another crucial difference is that it was your parents kind of setting out those parameters for you and making those demands of you right whereas Mm -hmm. my parents were both loathed by Mm -hmm. my my dad's family so uh, they were they were constantly being maligned and left out in some ways and treated like second class citizens is probably too good you know just treated so badly that it's it's hard to describe in some ways so you know I wasn't getting those messages from my parents mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. as you say like they were my dad in particular was betrayed by his family every day of his life. And yeah. that's what I, on some level, right. probably understood. Right. You know, Donald seems like he was the ultimate beneficiary of basically the cruelties of patriarchy because, of course, they passed over Marianne. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Because my grandfather basically ignored her. Yeah. You know, she's a girl. Who cares? She seems like she was probably the most capable in the group. Um. And then settled all that obligation onto Fred's shoulders. And I think it falls especially hard on the male sons, especially hard, because 
I was always viewed as somebody who whatever I did was sort of voluntary or, you know, extra. So I, I was I was always violating the rules, but my brothers had to fight against expectations that never went away. You know, you were always measured against your expectations. Um, do, I mean, do you think Donald enjoyed that part of it and kind of fed the process of your father getting destroyed? Well, he definitely definitely fed the process and asked for whether or not he enjoyed it. I mean, he was, as he said, the beneficiary. So yeah. Donald didn't have to run the gauntlet the way my dad did. Yeah. So essentially, my, my dad cleared the way mm. um, for Donald. And by the time Donald stepped in, I mean, he was getting so much uh, from my grandfather in terms of support and monetary compensation that, you know, by the time I was 12 or 13, like I bought into the whole thing that Donald was this extraordinarily wealthy self-made man. <laughs> and I just found out fairly recently that every single penny Donald had, every dime that he used to pay for his chauffeur and his limousines and his offices and his expensive clothing came directly from my grandfather. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Donald suffered at all from the expectation. I mean, he suffered early on for sure, but I think the early suffering yeah. kind of turned him into the kind of person that my grandfather felt he could use yeah. to fill, fill his own ambitions. Yeah. And I, I think though, that's why it's important to recognize even though I didn't, you know, I used to think that for my grandfather, money was really the only thing that mattered. And uh, it turns out that 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 wasn't the case. Like he, he had ambitions outside of Brooklyn and Queens, but for various reasons, didn't have the the resources internally mm. to mm. fulfill those ambitions. But he had so much money that that he could afford to fund Donald's losing career because what he wanted was the acclaim and the attention. And he, you know, he couldn't get it for himself. He would live vicariously through his right. completely unworthy son. Because, you know, Donald was terrible at business. He, you know, he couldn't manage money. <laughs> and I don't think yeah. my grandfather knew that right away, but he certainly knew it by the time Donald was going bankrupt in Atlantic City. I have to say, Donald is the apotheosis of the white male. Yep. You know, failing upward, unearned confidence. Um, arrogance, contempt for anybody weak. He even mansplains and manspreads, <laughs> right? Exactly. So the patriarchs like Donald and Fred, um, I think the thing they fear most is death. And I think that they therefore are driven by this fear of death, which is why they name their sons after themselves. That's why they want their sons to control. It's just a way of getting to immortality. They want to be enshrined in the building or they want the best doctor and, and the best hospital. Why do you think the great equalizer scares wealthy men more than it scares regular people? Partially because, you know, they think they're better. They they exist on a higher plane and it wouldn't be fair for, for them to have to die like the rest of us peasants, you know. Yeah. But I think it's because they're so tied up in what they have mm -hmm. that that's the only thing that gives the meaning. And the idea of being without that freaks them out. And for my grandfather, you know, his empire, it was so important to him that his empire survive in perpetuity Yeah, for that very reason. 
with Donald, I think it's more just, you know, the, the ego, but I, he's, he has a certain fatalism that's disturbing in a different way. Mm. Um, can you just, can you elaborate? Yeah. I, you know, whereas for my grandfather, he wanted this thing he'd built to last forever as a stand in for him. Um, Donald's take is, you know, if I can't win, then I'm going to tear it all down. Yeah. I'm going to destroy everything and bring all of you with me. I mean, do you think that especially the men in your family came to see themselves as not of the same species with everybody else? Oh, without doubt. They think they're better by virtue of the fact that they have money. So they don't have money because they're better. They're better because they have money. Well, I, good point. It works both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, they deserve it because they're better. But they're also better because they have it, which is why it would have been impossible for them, even though they were our trustees and they were the executors of my grandfather's will, who were the only beneficiaries. They could have done whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. They could have cut us in. Mm-hmm. They could have given us you know, a significant amount that wasn't our full share. They literally couldn't do it because it would have made them worthless, right. literally and figuratively. Right. And I've heard the criticism that, oh, you're just angry because you didn't get any money. And I would like any person to put themselves in your shoes. Yeah. And after my dad died when I was 16 and they were supposed to be taking care of me, if not emotionally, mm-hmm. which thank goodness they didn't, <laughs> but it's like, uh, you know, financially, they were supposed, they were, they had a fiduciary responsibility to me, which they totally abdicated because it didn't benefit yeah. them. So yeah. And look, the truth is it's been a really long time and I'm fine. And you know, but it doesn't mean that I'm still not entitled to it. And like, if, I, you're right. Like say to anybody, okay, somebody stole $50,000 from you and got away with it. But now, you know, you, you have an opportunity to get it back, but that makes you a selfish asshole. So this is a question people ask me all the time. Like, how did you become you? I mean, <laughs> granted, they rejected you. So that would be a good way to start your escape. But even so, a lot of people would keep coming back and keep coming back and ingratiate themselves and all the rest of that. Like, how did you have the good sense to escape? Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it was anything I did intentionally. You know, both of my parents were, my, my dad was the black sheep and my mother was universally reviled within my family. So I felt, I certainly mm-hmm. felt very protective of her and things were much more complicated between me and my dad, but it put up a barrier between me and the rest of the family. Also, I wasn't important to them, thankfully, so they didn't yeah. focus any attention on me. I was also one generation removed from the worst of it. Yeah, But, you know, over time, maybe one of the top three most important things is that I developed the kinds of friendships that stood in for family. Yeah. I'm curious about your relationship with your family going forward. What's it going to be like? Non-existent. And that's fair on both sides. I, I don't I don't see any way uh, to move beyond this because, you know, we've really never moved beyond anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it's a train wreck, Mary. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Mary's book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, is a runaway bestseller, so it doesn't need my 
endorsement, <laughs> but it's a ripping great read. So go get a copy. And she's a great follow on Twitter. Are you just at Mary Trump? L. Mary L. Trump. Mary L. Trump. Hold strong, Mary. I know that's <laughs> a lot of pressure on you right now, but you are crushing it. Uh, thanks, Abby. I really appreciate it. This is great. Okay, all ears, listeners, this is the last you'll hear from me till the start of season two in the fall. So enjoy and stay safe for the next month and a half. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at podcast at forkfilms.com. And thanks to my All Ears team, Kathleen Hughes, Aideen Kane, Alexis Pancrazi, Christine Schomer, Kat Vecchio, Lauren Winbush, and Sabrina Yates. Our theme music was composed by Bob Golden. Thanks for listening.